If we were able to see it, really able to see it, I think we would all be shocked at how much pride is in our hearts. One of the reasons why it is difficult for us to see it is because pride can take many forms and can be very elusive. When we think of pride, it is easy for us to limit it to the practice of boasting or bragging. And that certainly can be an expression of pride, but it is by no means the only expression of pride. Pride can take many forms. For example, do you realize that many times when you and I get our feelings hurt, it is because of pride? We rarely see it that way. We usually think that the reason why we get our feelings hurt is because someone has been insensitive to us or has said something unkind. While that may be a part of the equation, pride can also be at the root because our pride tells us that we deserve better than that. And we don't deserve such wrong treatment. Our pride tells us that we deserve to be treated better than the way we were treated. When we feel slighted or overlooked or mistreated, it is often pride that is at the root. Another way pride manifests itself is when we are offended by the way we have been treated or not treated. We usually convince ourselves that the reason why we are offended by something is because something wrong has taken place. But that isn't actually true and accurate in many cases. It could be in some, but not in many. Many times it's our pride that causes us to be offended because we have expectations and we have our preferences and we have our wants. And when those aren't met, that offends us. Who do they think they are that they haven't met my expectations? Oh, we would rarely say it that way. Because we like to convince ourselves that it isn't our pride, it's our principle. We like to justify ourselves and placate ourselves and appease ourselves. We don't want to consider the fact that it may be our pride that's the problem in this situation. Another way pride manifests itself is by our lack of interest in learning or our lack of interest in being stretched. A lack of teachability is clearly an expression of pride. We want to believe that we have everything figured out and we don't need to learn anymore and we don't need to be stretched anymore and we don't need to be challenged in our thinking and in our views. We think we are fine just as we are. Again, we may not be so bold as to say it that blatantly, but when we are unwilling to be challenged and stretched, in our thinking or in our ways, that is pride. Another way pride manifests itself is by our tendency to want to make sure that everyone hears our viewpoint or our input. Look at your conversations with people, especially in group settings. Do you have the tendency to make sure that your position is heard your viewpoint is heard, that can be an expression of pride. 
You can see why I said that our pride can take many forms and can be very elusive. It's not easy for us to recognize it. It's not easy for us to spot it. In fact, pride can be so subtle that it is possible to be prideful concerning spiritual issues. We can be proud of how many verses we have memorized. We can be proud of how often we pray or how much we pray or how we pray. We can be proud of how faithfully we have served or how long we have served. We can be proud of the fact that we have been baptized. We can be proud of the fact that we have gone to the mission field long-term or short-term. We can be proud of how well we know the Bible or how well we know theology and doctrine. We can be proud that people like our singing or our preaching or our teaching. We can be proud of how much we give to the Lord's work or how much we give to missions. We can be proud of how discerning we are. We can be proud that our children look a certain way or come across in a certain way. We can even be proud of how humble we are. Pride is pervasive. And it lurks around every corner looking for a foothold in our lives. But when it takes root, it doesn't want to make itself obvious. When it's obvious, we might be more inclined to deal with it and address it. But when it isn't obvious and when it is subtle and when it can hide behind spirituality, it can stay there undetected for a long time. That's the way pride likes to work. Our hearts can so easily be deceived into believing that we don't really have a problem with pride. It's even possible to be proud of the fact that you don't struggle with pride. Isn't that an oxymoron? Pride is present in all of us in one form or another. And the interesting thing about pride is that it is often easier for us to spot it in others than it is to spot it in ourselves. So just before we jump into our text this morning, which is on pride, let's pause and ask the Lord to point out the pride that is in our lives so we can address it. Would you bow with me, please? Father, we do ask that you would help us to see our pride so that we can address it And so our lives can be more pleasing to you. We pray that your spirit would break through any resistance we have. Enable us to be objective, to be open, to be teachable. As we hear from your word this morning, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Our text this morning is verses 35 through 45, so please follow along as I read these verses for us. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. We read, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? 
they said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they were they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As we read this incident that occurred during our Lord's ministry, it is important to keep in mind that we are reading about things that took place in the final weeks of his life. It's easy to miss that fact because we are only in chapter 10 this morning, And there are 16 chapters in Mark's gospel. And so it might be easy to assume that, well, there's a long way to go before Jesus gets to the end of his ministry because we've got a lot more chapters. But that's because Mark devotes so much of his gospel to the last week of our Lord's life and ministry. The opening verses of chapter 11 tell us about the triumphal entry, which we call Palm Sunday. So chapter 11 begins the countdown of our Lord's last week leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. That means that this event here in chapter 10 took place somewhere near the end of our Lord's ministry. Mark doesn't tell us specifically when, so we don't know if it was in the last month or the last six weeks or what, but we do know it was near the end. Now, why am I saying this? Because there's a sense in which that makes this event even more significant. We might be inclined to assume that the disciples would, already, would have already been victorious over pride by this time. After all, they've been walking with Jesus now for approximately three years. So surely by now they've conquered pride But this is a reminder that pride is a continual battle. We don't ever get over pride. We don't ever get to the point where we have conquered pride once and for all. We're done with it. We don't ever have to worry about that or think about that again. So we shouldn't be surprised that pride was still an issue for the disciples this far along because it's still an issue for every one of us here in this room regardless of how long we have known the Lord. And there's a sense in which it was good that this came out when it did because Jesus was especially using every opportunity in these final weeks to prepare his disciples for his departure. He is going to leave the ministry to them. They have to be ready. And a primary aspect of being ready is dealing with character issues that are a hindrance to effective ministry. Pride certainly falls into that category. So let's see how Jesus handled this situation. Verse 35 tells us, 
Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. As you probably know, these were two of the first disciples chosen and two of the inner circle consisting also of the apostle Peter. Peter, James, and John made up the inner circle of the disciples closest to Jesus. It doesn't mean that Jesus loved them more than he loved the other disciples, but he had unique and individual purposes for each of his men. And what he had planned for Peter, James, and John necessitated them being involved on a closer level at various times in his ministry. We see an example of this back in the opening verses of chapter 9 when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration with them, with him. He didn't give that experience to the other disciples, only to Peter, James, and John for specific reasons and purposes. And there are other such incidents in the gospel records. So it is possible that these unique opportunities and these unique experiences gave James and John the impression that they were more important than the other disciples or more worthy of exaltation than the other disciples. So they came to Jesus with a request. They said, Lord, we want you to do for us. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. This verse tells us that it was their request. But Matthew 20, 20 tells us that it was through their mother. So all three of them came to Jesus with this request, and evidently the mom was the spokesperson. Matthew tells us that she knelt down before Jesus. I don't think she was doing that to manipulate. It's possible, but personal opinion, I don't think so. It, It was probably a genuine expression of humility. If so, it's another amazing reminder how pride can run right alongside of humility. What I mean is, it is possible for us to come to the Lord in humility to bring to Him a prayer request that is prompted by pride. Oh Lord, please help everyone see what a good person I am. Oh Lord, please help everyone see that I'm right. Now, we probably wouldn't pray something that blatantly obvious. But what kind of things do we pray that are prompted by pride? That's a question that needs to be considered. James, John, and their mother are completely blind to how prideful their desire is. I mean, when we read this, even even before we know what they're going to ask, when we read them them say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, you kind of wince, don't you? It's like, can you believe they said that? Can you believe they started it that way? Regardless of what they're about to ask. You're almost like you blush for them. Like, James, John, would you back off? What are you doing? They're completely blind to how prideful this desire is. They may have even seen it as something that was noble or commendable. That's why I said that pride is elusive and subtle and not easy to detect in our own lives. Let this be a galvanizing reminder to us, beloved. It is so difficult 
for us to see pride in our lives. So difficult to see it in ourselves. It likes to disguise itself as something good or commendable or noble. So we have to ask the Lord to bring it out, to deal with it, just as he dealt with it on this occasion. Verse 36, Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. You see, they knew that the kingdom was still coming sometime in the future. They assumed it was right around the corner, any moment. They didn't know that the king was going to be crucified, resurrected, ascended back into heaven for a couple thousand years, and then come back to establish the kingdom as Jesus had tried to tell them in the previous verses. All that was foreign to them. But they knew the kingdom was coming, and they knew Jesus would sit on the throne of his glory. So the, the request was for James and John to sit on the right hand and on the left. In Matthew 19, Jesus had promised all the disciples that they would sit on thrones in the kingdom. Back up to that chapter for just a moment. Matthew's gospel, the previous book, Matthew 19. And look what Jesus had promised to them. Verse 27, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, literally in the again Genesis, the re renewal of the earth, which is how the prophet Isaiah and the other prophets often describe the millennial kingdom as a time when the desert will blossom like a rose, the lion will lie down with the lamb, this renewal, this of, of earth. He says, Surely I say to you that in the regeneration, in the renewal, in the kingdom, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So you see, they had already been given this promise. Therefore, James and John just took it a step further. They not only wanted to be on thrones, as Jesus says here, they wanted to be on the right hand and on the left hand. And that's what they're asking in Mark 10. Let's go back to that text there in Mark 10. So they knew they had been promised thrones. They're, they're taking it a step beyond that, asking for the right hand and the left hand. And notice the response of our Lord, verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? The first thing that Jesus says to James and John here in this verse is, you do not know what you ask. In other words, you don't realize that by asking for those positions, you are asking for suffering to come your way. Jesus explains that in the next statement when he says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? He is referring to the cup of suffering, which was not an uncommon way for the term cup to be used in the Old Testament. In addition, he describes his upcoming death as a baptism. 
Since baptism is immersion, this word was often used in a metaphorical sense of being overwhelmed with calamity, immersed into suffering. So Jesus pictures his upcoming crucifixion as a complete immersion into suffering and death. And he says, are you able to have those kinds of experiences? Are you able to deal with those kinds of things? James and John didn't realize what they were asking. Jesus is trying to get them to see the connection between suffering and glory. They wanted the positions of glory, right hand and left hand. But they had no idea that they were asking for suffering by asking for those positions. That's why he said, you don't know what you ask. You have no idea what you're asking for when you make such a request. Because suffering precedes glory. That's what Jesus was saying because that is an axiomatic principle in Scripture. Suffering precedes glory. 1 Peter 1.11 uses the phrase, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That is the pattern. Years later, when Peter wrote to a group of Christians who were suffering, he said to them in 1 Peter 5.6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So Peter eventually came to understand this reality that suffering precedes glory, but at this point, James and John didn't get it. They didn't understand that. They assumed that the kingdom was right around the corner, and they wanted the positions of prominence and glory. But Jesus informed them that they didn't realize what they were asking for with this request. They were asking for suffering. They were asking to drink the cup of suffering and to be immersed into suffering the way our Lord was immersed into suffering. Not only did they not understand that they were asking for suffering, they still didn't really understand that Jesus was going to experience suffering. So they answered him by saying, we are able. We don't know what their attitude was. If this was flippant, like, yeah, no big deal. We're we can do that. We can handle that. But whatever the attitude, they thought they were okay with it, competent. They could handle it. We're able. In response to their assertion, Jesus went on to explain that they were indeed going to experience suffering. Verse 39, they said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Jesus told them, Jesus warned them that the cup of suffering was coming their way. And it did come. James was beheaded, as recorded in Acts chapter 12. As far as we know, the first of the disciples to die a martyr's death. And John was tortured and exiled to the island of Patmos, as we see in the book of Revelation. So they were going to experience suffering. They were going to experience suffering before they experienced the glory of exaltation on thrones in the kingdom, as promised in Matthew 19. But, but Jesus went on to say, that wouldn't guarantee that they would have the positions of right hand and left hand in the kingdom. 
Those positions will be determined by the Father's sovereign will. Here in Mark's account, it reads this way, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Matthew's account makes it clear, prepared by the Father. In other words, the Father's sovereign will determines who gets those positions. They should have been content to leave that with the Father, but they weren't. And, catch this, Neither were the other disciples. Because verse 24 tells us, the very next verse, after this, or verse 41, I'm sorry, and when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. The other disciples were angry because they were jealous that James and John beat them to the draw. They had just as much pride as James and John. They all wanted one of those positions. Each and every one of the disciples wanted either the right hand or the left hand. They weren't grieved at the prideful ambition of James and John. That's not what it's saying. They were upset that James and John beat them to the punch, so they were all in the same boat. It is shocking to realize that this prideful request by James and John came right after Jesus announced his suffering in the previous verses. In verses 32 through 34, Jesus had told them that he was going to be betrayed, condemned, delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, scourged, spat upon, and crucified. Coming right off of the heels of that announcement, the disciples got into this tiff about who would get the best positions in the kingdom. They were all consumed with prideful ambition. So Jesus decided that it was time to address it. Verse 42. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Basically, what Jesus was saying to his men here was this. Men, you have taken your cues from the culture around you. You have taken your definition of leadership from the the world around you. Your perspective has been shaped by that, but it's the wrong perspective. Beloved, do you realize how true this is of us today? Our culture is just as prideful as theirs was And so often we are products of our culture. We allow our culture, our surroundings to influence us. Our culture tells us to promote ourselves and stand up for ourselves. You deserve a break today. And we buy into that way of thinking. We're just like the disciples in this sense. We let our culture influence us and shape us and mold us, but it's shaping us the wrong way. That's what Jesus was saying to his men. You know how it works in this culture. You know how leaders lord it over and they they take delight in authority and being over people. No, that's not the way it is in in my kingdom, in our family. Verse 43 He says, yet it shall not be so among you. That is a strong statement. 
It shall not be so among you. Some translations, not so with you. Men, let me paraphrase this. Men, you are not going to be this way. You are not going to do things this way. That's what Jesus was saying to his men. And that's what he still says to us today. This is not the way it's going to be. We're not going to operate this way. Pride is not a virtue. Pride is not going to be winked at and seen as a trivial thing. It's a serious matter. It's the antithesis of how I want you to operate, men, and you need to hear this now. That's what Jesus was saying. Verse 43, It shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. What a powerful exhortation. Jesus directed their ambition towards servanthood. He says, man, if you want to stand out, if you want to excel, do so as a humble servant. That was a radical statement. This was totally contrary to their culture, just as it is totally contrary to our culture today. True greatness, as measured by our Lord, is in humility and servanthood, not in power and authority and lording it over. It's not prominence. Beloved, do you realize how how much we have to fight those thoughts from taking root in our hearts? Our culture isn't going to reinforce the right way of thinking for us. We have to take our cues from our Lord and not from our culture. He is our leader. He is our teacher. He is our master. He is our Lord. And he is our example. Verse 44, he says, And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. This term is even stronger than the previous one. The last word in verse 43, at least in in my translation, is servant. But this is the term slave. There's no glory in that. There's no honor in that. There's no exaltation in that. Except from the Lord. So where do you want to get your recognition? Do you want to get it from the world or from the Lord? His way is diametrically opposed to the world's value system, the world's way of thinking, the world's perspective. He has outlined the course for us. He has outlined the path for us. But he not only taught it, he modeled it. And that's verse 45. For, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus didn't teach one thing and live another. He modeled what he taught. He came to this earth as the king, and yet he gave and he gave and he gave. 
We've seen this in our study of Mark so far. Multitudes of people were always pressing at him. And he gave to them profusely. They pressed at him so much that on one occasion he told his disciples that they needed to have a boat ready by the shore of the Sea of Galilee so he could get away if he were going to be crushed to death. He gave so much that he was often completely and totally exhausted. On one occasion, he was sleeping in the hull of a boat in the midst of a life-threatening storm. The storm didn't even wake him up. That's how exhausted he was. He came to serve, not be served. And the ultimate manifestation of his service was when he gave his life a ransom on the cross, as he says in the last phrase of this verse. His life was offered up as a ransom to God to pay for your sins and my sins, and one of those sins is pride. That sure puts it in perspective, doesn't it? How can we, how can we hold on to pride and coddle it? Or how can we even just disregard it and see it as a trivial thing when we know that our precious Lord gave his life to pay for it, and to deliver us from it. This incident surely had to have a profound impact on the disciples. They needed to come to grips with their pride, to deal with it. And beloved, so do we. Pride is a deadly virus that can permeate our entire being. Yet it likes to conceal itself so that it isn't seen for what it really is. It comes out in various ways, like when we want to be noticed, or when we want to be commended, or when we want to be acknowledged. It comes out in some situations when we get our feelings hurt or when we get offended. It comes out when we feel slighted or overlooked. It comes out in our lack of teachability or our attitudes of having everything together. It comes out in our distaste of being stretched in our thinking, challenged in our views, stretched in our perspectives. It comes out when we think we're fine just as we are. It comes out when we want to make sure that our viewpoint is heard, our perspective is heard, and it even comes out in our spiritual accomplishments. It can be elusive, subtle, and difficult to recognize in our lives. But listen, it is crucial, absolutely crucial that we spot it because it's a deadly spiritual virus in our system. So as we wind down this morning, let me ask you a question that I really want to encourage you to give serious consideration to, and it is this, how are you dealing with pride? Is it even something that's on your radar that you even ever think about? Like, okay, Lord, how, how do I need to address my pride? How do I need to de deal with my pride? How are you dealing with it? How are you addressing it? It calls on us. The fact that we, we battle pride calls on us to humble ourselves the, before the Lord by calling out to him for forgiveness, for cleansing, for victory. He delights in answering such a prayer. Would you please bow your head with me as we close this morning?
And as we bow together, please take a moment to really give serious consideration to that question that all of us need to ask ourselves today. How are we dealing with our pride? Honestly. What are we doing about it? What are we doing to address it? Or do we just ignore it as a pretty minor, trivial thing? And I would say this. It is often pride that holds someone back from surrendering to Christ in the first place. So maybe that's you here this morning. You came here this morning for whatever reason, but you don't You don't really have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't know him as your Lord and Savior. And possibly the thing that is holding you back is pride. You don't want to admit that you're a sinner. You don't want to admit that you need grace. You don't want to admit that you need forgiveness. Pride is often the very thing that holds some people back from becoming a Christian, from embracing Jesus Christ by faith. If that is you, I can't urge you strongly enough. Let go of your pride. It will damn you for eternity if you don't. Let go of your pride and receive Jesus Christ by faith. That's why Jesus said we have to humble ourselves as little children if we want to be in the kingdom. So you humble yourself before the Lord. And if you have, if you're a child of God... Just as we've seen this morning, that's no guarantee that we've conquered pride. James and John were clearly Christians by this point. They were disciples, apostles, future leaders when Jesus left the ministry to them. And yet, this pride was permeating their hearts. So let that be a reminder to us, beloved. It doesn't matter how long we've known the Lord, three years, 30 years, 53 years, whatever. It doesn't mean that pride is gone that pride is no longer an issue. So for us, as God's children even, as God's people, we need to be on the lookout for pride in our hearts and in our lives. Ask the Spirit of God to search your heart so that you and I can really see where we need to address this in our lives. And Father, that is our prayer. As we Look at this story. We certainly don't want to leave it as merely print on a page or a historical account uh, that something happened back then but has no relevance to us today. Help us to see how much we are like James and John and the other disciples. How much pride seeks to take root in our hearts and how how much it wants to have a grip on us and and how, how subtle it can be how blind we can be to it. Father, help us. Help us to see it and deal with it and address it that we may be more pleasing to you. And we not only pray that for our own lives, for ourselves as your people, but we also pray that for anyone here among us who is not one of your children, who is not a child of God. And maybe it's pride that is holding him back or holding her back because of a, an unwillingness to want to admit a need for forgiveness, uh, unwillingness to want to admit a need for grace, for mercy, for salvation. 
Lord, please break through that pride so that that man or woman today would humble himself or humble herself and place faith in Jesus Christ. Father, hopefully by your Spirit and by your Word, we have been given a glimpse of how deadly pride can be. And may your Spirit cause us to always be sensitive to it in whatever form it takes in our lives. Use your truth, use your Word, use your Spirit to continue working in us that which is pleasing to you. Accomplish in all of our hearts, every one of us gathered here, all of our lives, your good purposes this day. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.